In November of 2019, Greenville's Endeavor, which is a co-working community in downtown Greenville, asked me to come speak about what it's taken to put Murder, Etc. together and everything that's happened since. We thought it might make a good bonus episode. Turned out we were right. So what you'll hear here are its partners, Joe Irwin and Shannon Wilbanks, both introducing me, then asking me questions along the way. It was a fairly laid-back experience where I ended up revealing a lot more than I expected to. Check one, two, check one, two, check, 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 check one, two, check one, two. It's rolling now. I'm gonna mic him up. Uh, I'm mic'd. Uh, I'm gonna mic you up real quick. Yeah. Just... All right. Thanks everybody for turning out. I'm Joe Irwin. I am the uh, co-founder of Endeavor, along with my business partner Shannon Wilbank. This is a really special mic. When I heard first heard about this, first hear about murder, etc., and you go, well, I'll listen to one. But oh my God, I hope I don't like it. This thing's going to go on forever. And so I listened to one. And I'm going, damn, that's pretty compelling. Maybe I'll check out one more. Uh, 22 episodes later, and, um, Shannon Wilbanks, as I said, is the co-founder of Endeavor. So before we get into this, we want to start with you. Tell us about growing up in Missouri and your family. And the funny thing about Missouri is that. I never would have thought moving to the South would have been anything like living at home. But Greenville is so much like where I grew up in every way. You know, it's a conservative community. We have Bob Jones here, but there you have Baptist Bible College and you have Evangel University. It's also mountainous. The Ozark Mountains run through there. The people are very much the same. Now, it doesn't have a lot of the Southern culture that I've come to appreciate and uh, frankly appropriate. And what did you want to be when you grew up? When I left high school, and this sounds ridiculous, I wanted to be an FBI agent. I loved outlaws. I loved yep. them from the moment I was little to now. And I still love outlaws, but I also loved the idea of a chase. And I love the idea of going out and finding the bad guy and bringing him back. And I thought I can be an FBI agent, but I'm, look at me, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not taking down anybody. And more than anything, I'm like, uh, I was a storyteller. And that's what I, you know, when I left, I decided I was going to be an English major. And that's how, that's how I went to college. I went to the University of Missouri, which a lot of people would argue is the best journalism school in the country. It is definitely the best broadcast journalism school in the country. I had no intention of being a journalism major. I was an English major, had this wonderful professor who was a Mark Twain expert. And I loved his class. I loved Mark Twain. I loved everything about it. And I'm like, this is my English. This is what I'm going to do. And I mean, bless the man. He was up there in his cardigan sweater every day that I walked in. And it was the same cardigan sweater. And I pictured myself probably about my age now, and I thought, I can't wear a cardigan sweater every day. And I, I, can't, I can't be this guy. And I love Mark Twain and I love writing, but I can never do this. And about that time, someone said, you know, your voice is pretty good. Maybe you could try journalism. And I'm like, I happen to be at the best broadcast journalism school in the country. And, you know, I look at this picture and, you know, I see my wife who was a journalist long before I was, despite being younger than I am. And she was an inspiring force. So you followed the girl. She was one of these people who went to a man when she was 16 years old who owned a television station in Jackson, Mississippi and said, I want to work for you. She became a producer at age 16. And by the time she found like Mizzou and I found her there, she was experienced. She was a staff member while going to school because she had so much life experience with it. And she was the reason that I stayed in television 
you know, she claims that uh, she thought it was cute when I tried to teach her how to splice analog tape together. Um, I was being very awkward. Uh, but she eventually came around to the idea that we should be married. So we were. We got married up at Pretty, Pace, uh, Pretty Place in Northern Greenville County. And your family grew? Well, we had two kids, and those kids are now 15 and 10. They're both baseball players, and uh, they're both pretty good at what they do. They're also gigantic fans of the podcast. And the, the older one, the, the, one of the best moments that I've had, frankly, it was one night when I got a major break in the case, and I'm sitting in my office, and it's dark. And I look over, and on the couch in my office is my son. And he's grabbed his Chromebook, and he's opened up newspapers.com, and he's researching beside me, trying to help. I'm like, this is probably you know the best moment in journalism that I've had, is just having my son dig into it as hard as he did. Oh, that's really cool. But before then, there was this. <laughs> All right, yeah, so uh, what you're looking at is the Flaming Puppies. Um, flaming Puppies made up of a guy who loved alt-country and two guys who loved Rush, which is why the Flaming Puppies didn't last very long. Um, but uh, that guitar that you see in my hand right there hangs on my wall right now, and it's, you know, it was used to produce some of the music for the podcast. But I loved, like, I, I, I pictured myself as being a rock star a lot like I pictured myself being an FBI agent. Never going to happen, but I can play the part for a second, you know? Tell us the day you first heard the name Charles Wakefield. In 2001, I was on a bad story and I wanted to be doing something that was important that day. It just so happened that on that day that I got a voicemail and that voicemail was a follow-up to an inquiry I'd made. And on this one day, I discovered that a man named Charles Wakefield Jr. had been paroled for double murder and one of the victims in that double murder was a Greenville County deputy. In my head, I thought no one ever gets paroled for killing a deputy. And at the time, I was also the cop beat reporter for Channel 4. And I had all of these friends who were cops. I thought, how would these people feel about the fact that a man who was convicted of being a cop killer is on the street? So I turned it into a story that day. And that's why we're here today. <laughs> so what happened after you turned it into a story? Actually, at the time, I was really impressed with myself. I was so impressed with myself at the time that I, and this is the most one of the most embarrassing things that, I've, that I can tell about myself. I went home and I wrote down this essay about how proud of myself I was. I was getting, you know, it was 2001, I was in my 20s. I'm getting burned out in the industry, but I just found my new, uh, my new purpose in life because I made a difference in my community today. I kept a cop killer in prison because what happened, retired chief of police went on the air with me and gave this indignant speech about how much of an injustice it was that ended up in the parole board rescinding the parole of the man that just received parole. And at the time I thought I'd done a really, really good job. Um, eventually I found out that I didn't. And partly thanks to this guy? That's a guy named Eric Gottlieb. Eric was, and, and Andy Etheridge, who's in the podcast, uh, and I joke about this all the time because they refer to him as the New York lawyer. It's almost like when you're talking about paste picante sauce and they say, New York City. Uh, he was a New York lawyer that came to town. He wanted to be a documentary filmmaker and he wanted to do a documentary about a person who'd been wrongly convicted. One of the people that he was looking at was Charles Whitefield Jr. He came down just to meet him and see what it was all about. And when he got here, he realized what was happening and it just so happened that he also had a law degree. And he, I won't say that he abandoned the documentary project, but what he ended up doing was focusing more on being an advocate for this man who'd been convicted of this crime. But not too long after I put out this report, he shows up at Channel 4. He has this thing that's about this thick, and it weighs like five pounds. And he puts it down, 
And he says, read that. And if you still believe Charles Wakefield Jr. is guilty, then we don't ever have to speak again. So I started reading it. And I, <laughs> it, it changed my life. So you learned about Frank Looper? Yeah, I, 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 here's the thing. If, if I was a, you know, I, I worked at Channel 4. I was a cop beat reporter. I knew all the cops. I knew the lieutenants, the captains, everybody. I'd never heard of Frank Looper. You know, I'd been here for two years. He wasn't on my radar at all. Frank Looper was a, a child of Greenville. He grew up here. He hunted rabbits. Uh, he graduated from Greenville High School. And after he graduated from Greenville High School, he went into the Navy, did four years in the Navy, came home. Still wasn't entirely sure what he wanted to do with his life, so he went to Furman, graduated from Furman. And after he graduated from Furman, he still wasn't entirely sure what he wanted to do, but I, he started trending toward law enforcement. And he went to work briefly for the sheriff of 1972, a guy named uh, Bob Martin, and didn't work out. And I eventually figured out why it didn't work out, but it didn't work out. And then came back and became the head of the narcotics unit for the Greenville County Sheriff's Office. I, you know, it, I was born in 1973. So uh, I have, you know, the, the frame of reference for me isn't there. For me, I always have lived in the drug war. And the drug war was always, I was Ronald Reagan, just say no. Nancy Reagan, just say no. I was not aware that there was a time in America where we didn't just say no. And the reason the drug war existed was largely because we needed to deal with the counterculture that had all the drugs happening. And now there's a drug war. Frank Looper became one of the frontline soldiers in the drug war in 1973. And he was a true believer in fighting against drugs at that time, and at a time when almost no one had been fighting against drugs. And in um, Greenville in 1973, there were a lot of drugs. <laughs> Not only were there a lot of drugs, we manufactured drugs here for a very long time. If you drive down I-85 right now, and just in between Malden Road and Pleasantburg Drive, you look over and there's a vitamin company over there right now. And I can't remember what the vitamin company is called, but it's a vitamin company. In that building was a, uh, a place called Table Rock Laboratories, where they had 50-gallon barrels full of amphetamine powder. Um, I mean, basically, you could, you could dump out one of those barrels and Greenville would be awake for the next 10 years. Um, and there's been times during this podcast I thought I could use one of those barrels. Um, but... People would go in there and the security was terrible. So they went in and they would steal all of it and they would cut it and they would repackage it. And millions and millions of dollars of drugs on the street. Uh, heroin was you know, becoming gigantic in Greenville at the time. You had an organized crime network that was selling it all. And there was basically one man with about four or five guys beside him trying to fight it. So as you're trying to make this a book, how did it turn from a book into a podcast? I kept running into this wall that I had all of this story that built up over time and I could write every chapter to it except for the end. And I didn't know what the end was. And I didn't know how it was possible to write a book that didn't have an ending and sell it to anyone. So one day, uh, th this happened twice. There were, there were two times that people said, hey, Brad, you shouldn't write a book. One of them was with a journalist friend of mine who lives in London. The other one was my wife. And both of them said, this needs to be a podcast. And I had no idea how to do a podcast. I listened to podcasts, I love podcasts, had no idea how to do them. And I said bad words to them. And I said, I'm going back to writing a book. And I went back to trying to write the book. And 
I remember another night specifically that I was I was sitting on my couch, and we called it by the, it's America's couch by the way is what we call it because uh, you know, on election nights my wife and I would sit there and we would one time we even brought the American flag in it's America's couch uh, I was sitting on America's couch and I'm researching and I hit this moment and I'm and I realized that there's this guy that I've been looking for forever and I know how he's connected and I know all of it and I want to tell the world right now. But I still pushed it back. And then finally, uh, summer of 2018, my wife and I do the one thing that you should never ever do while you're trying to consider something else in your life. We decided to remodel our house. Um, <laughs> and we hired all the contractors that everybody recommended to us um, and then fired every one of them because they all sucked. And so now I'm, now, now I'm painting. Now I'm, and now I'm painting and I'm listening to a, a great podcast, which is called In the Dark, season two. I'm listening to it and I'm, I, I'm standing on my bedroom wall doing this and I just stop. And I'm like, well, damn, it's gotta be a podcast. And I walk downstairs and she's downstairs doing something in the kitchen with paint or whatever. And I said, hey, it needs to be a podcast. She goes, I know. And um, so then I had to figure out how to do a podcast. And fortunately, you met this guy. <laughs> met is a weird word. All right. So, so if you don't know, if, you, if you're in the room and you don't know him, he's sitting in the front row right now. Um, what I didn't know for that entire period of time was that there was a man named Andy Etheridge, who's younger than I am, doesn't have gray hair yet. You, you will eventually. Um, who had been researching this story as long as I had, maybe actually longer by about a year. It came to him because he needed something to do and he was interested and he started researching this story. And if you're not part of like the online research community, you may not be familiar with newspapers.com, but you, if you set up your account settings wrong, people can see everything you go and look to and clip. And he set it up wrong. Um, <laughs> and I kept, every time I would go to a story to go clip it, I'm like, who's this guy? And why is he doing it? And I had these two paranoid moments, one of which was like, one, there's somebody who knows what I'm doing right now. And they're, they're right behind me and they're ahead of me. And they're like, they know what I'm doing and I'm gonna freak out and I'm gonna get killed. The other part of me was, there's some guy out there that's gonna try to scoop me on this story. It turns out it's him um, <laughs> who had neither of those intentions. He just literally wanted the story out. And I, I, I won't say that I fought him off, but I was not as responsive as I should have been to him early on as a guy who really cared about this case. But it was only after it became a podcast, I sent him an email. I'm like, yeah, we should probably meet. Um, and so one, one afternoon, he got off work. I got off work. And we went and sat at a sports bar. And I walked in with all my stuff. And he walked in with all his stuff. And we sat across the table from each other. I'm like, I think it's got to be a podcast. He's like, I think we can do that. And um, he, ha he is everything that I am not in this podcast. I am pretty good at making sure my settings are set correctly on newspapers.com and, <laughs> and can research pretty well. Uh, he grew up here. Uh, he grew up in the Gower community, right? Grew up in the Gower community. Also spent some time down in Greenwood County. But he knows this area really, really well. And he knows its people really, really well. And he's taught me a lot more that I would not ever have known because I didn't move here until 1999. And he is intuitive as hell. The, the Table Rock story that is part of this, he talked to me about that a year before I ever mentioned it on a podcast. And when he talked to me about it, I'm like, come on, man, you are really stretching here. And then I talked to a guy who's in federal prison. He goes, you know, this is all about Table Rock, right? I'm like, oh, wow. Um, so that's how I met Andy. The one thing that is really hard to get a hold of is an actual transcript of the trial in the Looper murders. There's a person who has a digest of it that we've read, 
that I had for years, but I never actually had an actual transcript. I call the Supreme Court of South Carolina and I say, I would love a transcript of this trial and the appeal that was filed in 1977. They said, you're welcome to it. Our printer is broken. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> so one day, Andy and I drive down to this, the Supreme Court. And Andy, to this day, is embarrassed. And I love the fact that you're wearing your hat right now because he, he had on a Braves t-shirt. He took off his hat um, as we walked in because there's a guy at the door, literally the only person we saw for the first 10 minutes we're in the Supreme Court. He's got a Glock on his hip. You know, he lets us in. And we're wandering around through the Supreme Court of South Carolina and no one's stopping us. We can do literally whatever we want. The woman, the librarian who's there is on vacation. So... What you, what you see here is a screenshot from my phone because their printer is still broken. It took us about 5, 10, 15 minutes to find where we were going. And then when we were supposed to find the microfilm that the transcript was on, we couldn't find it until we were just about to give up. And then we both walk in the office of the librarian and just sort of look at her desk like this. We look at her desk. I'm like, I think that says Wakefield. Uh -uh. And I grab it and we go and we put it in the, in the microfilm machine and it's everything we need. But to get it home, we have to go through approximately a thousand pages and take a picture of each one. So that's Andy and my relationship. We basically spend a lot of time in his pickup truck because he insists on driving everywhere. Um, and uh, I've got the microphone. So uh, and we record because I, I, refu I, I refuse to do anything without recording it because there's always something that might pop up. Um, so that's like, I found a friend and a brother that I didn't know that I had. Um, and it turns out he, you know, it's the one person who cared about this as much as I did um, in Greenville. With Charles, was he as forthcoming as you had hoped in the beginning or did that progress? Here, here, here's what you do. I mean, imagine a situation to where you have to go meet with a guy that you kept in prison for nine years. Uh, he says, meet me at my sister's house in Easley. And you tell your wife, I'm going to go meet with the guy that was on death row. And she's like, whoa, but you're already gone. And you're driving down I-85 thinking, I got this. You're like, hold on. Maybe he's not happy about this. And there was this moment where I pulled into this neighborhood and easily, and I'm trying to find the house. And I look up and I see this little girl and she's taking a walk. There's a neighborhood garage sale going on. And there's this gigantic man next to her. And he's holding her hand and he's walking her. And I realize it's Charles Wakefield Jr., all 6'3", 220 of him, uh, walking this little girl through the neighborhood. And you know, we start talking then and realize that if there was a man that ever needed to have somebody listen, you know, it was him. And you know, I, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of hours that I've spoken to him over the years or the number of times. So I, I also drive him around in my truck, but I hold the <laughs> microphone while I do it. <laughs> I studied how to do a podcast and realized there was no one way to do it. But in my head, there was one way to do it. And it had to sound perfect. It had to be perfect audio like This American Life. It had to have you know, good interwoven music. It had to have a good editor. It had to have a good storytelling. And I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. So the very first time I did this, I did it in a collapsible box that had some egg crate style foam in it and a microphone that was not suited for it at all. After doing it for about 10 or 11 episodes, I realized again, and I've used this word way too much, but it sucked. It was terrible. <laughs> so one day my wife had bought a, uh, a, a couch or like an, a, a, a something, but it had pillows. And that's the point is that it had pillows and I stole all the pillows and a blanket. And I went up to our guest room and I hid underneath those with my microphone and I voiced it in there. 
And when I voiced it in there, I'm like, oh, that sounds much better. But she's like, you can't keep taking the cushions. Stop taking the cushions. Um, so fortunately one day, and what you see at the bottom right is what we call Fort Pillow at my house now, because my 15-year-old son got a large amount of PVC pipe and some moving blankets and built a seven foot tall square sound booth for me where the entire podcast is now put together. Fort Pillow. What I didn't realize was how damned expensive it is to do it right. If I was, I, I had, because I'm a musician as well, but only an amateur musician. So I had the kind of microphones and stuff I needed for that. When I started studying, I went to the This American Life website. I'm like, how do you do this? And fortunately, they were really smart. They had a page on, this is the equipment we have. So I went out and I bought all of the equipment we ha they had. And you see up there, I mean, literally, we're attached to a couple of the things that are up there right now. I bought the equipment that should have made me sound really good if I'd known what I was doing. And I had to explain to my wife, she goes, it's gonna be fine. I'm like, we have to have all of this. And by having all of this, that means we're not taking vacation this summer. Um, and so that's what we did. And I bought all of this stuff. The funny thing about this is it's called a dead cat. Prior to having the dead cat, I just had a black, it's a windscreen. It keeps the stuff from, the wind from making a microphone sound bad. But you also have the pistol grip microphone thing and the microphone. So Andy and I are walking around in West Greenville one afternoon without the dead cat on it. And it looks like I'm just pointing a gun everywhere I go. Um, and a woman drives up beside and she goes, what are you boys doing? I'm like, I don't even know anymore. Um, but yeah, equipment's a, I, I was insistent on having at least reasonably good equipment. And you know, up, what's up there is not pro grade, but it was as close as I could get to it with our budget. So you mentioned music and how critical a piece it is for a podcast that you aspired to do. How did you solve for that? At first, I thought this is going to be very easy because all musicians would love to have their music in a podcast. And I realized very quickly that the licensing of any music that I've ever loved and known was going to cost me more than my house is worth. So I thought I'll use free music because there's a lot of that out there. People who, you know, working for exposure thing. Um, and I'm like, that's not going to work either. And I thought, well, now we're screwed. I realized how screwed we were when I went to 60 Minutes because all I wanted from 60 Minutes was 30 seconds from an episode that Andy told me he had seen from 1975 to, in which they had talked about South Carolina's connection to New York and feeding stolen guns up to New York for New York crimes. And I went to 60 Minutes and I said, can I please just have 30 seconds of this so I can play it behind? And they said, sure, at $6,000. I don't, I don't have $6,000. There's one day I'm sitting there and I think I really need to figure out how to, because I won't do it if it doesn't have a good soundtrack. I just won't. And I pick up the guitar on the far left, which I've had since I was 17 years old, and I just hit an E minor chord. And that is the sound. That's that. It's that sound right there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hit, and the funny thing about that is that when I recorded it, and it ends up being a two and a half minute thing. I titled it what I thought it was, which was entirely too, and the, the title of it is Too Dark, which is way too dark for this podcast. We'll just throw that aside. Colloquially, uh, among the people who listen to the podcast and in the house, we just call it the bong. Bong. And that's what it is. The other big piece here is the website. You know, when I hear podcast, I think audio. And yet with you, this piece of it is an is 50%. I mean, it's enormous. As my wife said for a long time, we're visual people. We came out of television and we love podcasts. I mean, we're the voracious consumers of podcasts, but I, 
number one, still consider myself a writer in some way. And I like to see who I'm listening to. And so I had this vision for the web website and I wanted the website to be amazing. I put everything I could into making sure that I had everything that was gonna be in an episode supported by the website. I wanted to make sure that people could see as many pictures as they could. They could read the written version of what I wanted it to be, parts of the book. In fact, episode one, which you see here, a lot of what's on that page right there was like an early draft of the book that I was working on because I wanted people to know what was there. You could, but they could also listen to it there. It was a one-stop shop, essentially. And then I learned all these cool new tools, how you could make maps and you could make timelines and you could do all this other stuff. And then I realized that maintaining a podcast and maintaining a website is really hard and time consuming. And what she will not tell you is that after she started listening to the podcast and because she's very organized, she called up one day and a lot like Andy and a lot like Christy um, said, can I help? And I said, I don't know, how can you help? And what she does is she goes in and every time I publish anything on the website, she goes in behind me and takes out all of my mistakes. Um, she, take, she takes out the, the typos. She says, you know, you did this wrong, this captions, whatever. And she fixes it for me. And she doesn't ask anything other than just, you know, can I do it? And, and show up on a Thursday night and yeah, well, talk to us. But yeah. again, but I mean, and so, I mean, you've got people like Andy who'll do the nonstop research. You've got Christy who has like worked every kind of marketing thing for me and paid for pavilions and paid for space and made large stand-up things that I couldn't have ever figured out how to do. And then, you know, people like you, you know, you, you know I literally, I mean, I knew you some before, I didn't know either of these people, but it was like, it's the type of stuff that, you know, my wife does because she's married to me um, and, and believes in the project, but doesn't have to. And so I get, you know, the fact that the website actually has somebody backing it up like you makes me very happy and proud. Okay, so tell us what this, um, this is not a scene from Homeland. What are we, what are we looking at? Of all the things that have been successes about this, the most proud moment that I've had, there were, it's happened twice now. A teacher in Greenville County said, I wanna use murder, et cetera, and the story you're telling as part of my curriculum. One of them's an eighth grade teacher, one of them is a, so a teacher for sophomores. The eighth grade teacher is listening to the podcast. The sophomore teacher, has turned her entire block of class into it. That is a wall of her classroom right now, which is the pictures from the website. They have the locations on the map. They have all the questions that the students are asking. And so it was maybe a month ago that I walk in and I walk into a classroom of kids as they're listening to episode two, but they're listening to episode two. And one of the happiest moments I had, uh, the first time I ever spoke in front of a group of people about this, a teacher, from eighth grade walks in and she goes, this is the permission slip that my students have to sign to listen to your podcast. I would love it for you to have one and I'd love for you to sign one for me. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I don't need any more money. I don't need any success. That will do, that's fine. But then on top of all that, the last two and a half weeks have happened. So starting in January, you're releasing podcasts every two to three weeks. Uh, and then out of nowhere in October, those of us who are following you online realize, hey, wait a minute, we're getting this special episode and this is suddenly on the front page of the Greenville News. I had everything so well planned. I had the board, I had the sticky notes and it was like, it was all the way to December, it was perfectly planned. And then at some point in middle of October, all of a sudden I hear, wait a second, there's something happening right now. And what's happening right now is that the Greenville Police Department 
apparently at some point in the last six to 18 months found new evidence in the case that they had told no one about, including me, despite the fact that I'd asked, spoken about it in a public meeting, and I was able to get the audio from that. And what they found was a letter about the sheriff of 1975 from one of his mistresses who said that he was complicit in the murder and his deputies were complicit in the murder and that they were both all complicit in framing Charles Wakefield Jr. for it. But at the same time, Andy Etheridge won't let stuff go as much as I want him to sometimes. He just <laughs> won't let it go. And he tracks down this guy who is the son of one of the chief witnesses in the case. And that son tells Andy, I don't think my mom was there. I'm like, I want to hear that story. And by the way, I found a gun. And what kind of gun did you find? He tells us the brand of the gun and the make of the gun and the model and the caliber. And it's the exact make, model, and caliber of the murder weapon. And it's not necessarily a common gun. Any teasers on future episodes? The thing is, I have no idea what's going to happen now. I mean, I honestly thought at the beginning of October, I knew how the rest of the series was going to play out. We were going to put it to bed. I was going to go apologize to everyone that I hadn't spoken to in a long time, all of my good friends and family. I was going to walk the dogs for the first time in nine months. The, I'm still going to tell the rest of the story as it happened in 1975. So tomorrow, people are going to hear about the witness that recanted. The week after that, we're going to talk a little bit about... Uh, how society broke down in Greenville uh, in a way that we didn't expect. And it's a, it's a spoiler, but I'm going to tell you anyway, because it's the most poignant story I think I've heard about this particular part of the issue. Speaking to a man whose father was the judge in this case, and he talks about going up to the Greenville County Courthouse, and he stays up there all the time, and how he walked in and he saw the white women and white men bathrooms and how eventually because of desegregation of whatever, they had to pull the letters that said that off the door. But because the doors had been there for so long, once you took the stencil off, you could still see it on the door. And the moment I heard that story and a lot of what Andy talked to me about, about stuff that I didn't know, there's an element of the story that needs to be told that frankly, I mean, I'll be frank, I've avoided it because people don't wanna talk about race. And it's scary to talk about it. And for some people it's distracting and they feel like it's a political issue, but it's not, it's a Greenville issue. And that's the episode that comes after the one tomorrow. And then we get into the trial and we get into everything else that happens, which is absolutely insane. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> look, you, um, we appreciate that you have helped us understand all these stories. And it occurs to me that you are living an incredible one. So thank you for sharing it with us. Oh. I mean, I should say to everyone who's here, of all the people who've been kind to me, and you know, many of them are here right now, Joe and Shannon have been ri so ridiculously kind that all I want to do is just go stand out on Main Street and say Endeavor is the most amazing place ever. Um, I'm amazed anytime anyone shows up to listen to me talk about this at all. But more than anything, I'm, for the, maybe the first time in my life, actually proud. Um, because people that I really sincerely respect and love, I know are proud right now. And to see, you know, people that I know and love be proud of me, uh, it gives me everything. And I got to say one more thing, one more thing. I called Charles Wakefield a couple of days ago after I found out about the gun and the new evidence. And... 
he didn't say anything that would ever like make it to the podcast because it wasn't a quote. It was just a sound. It was Brad, Brad, oh, Brad, Jesus, Brad. And I could hear the excitement building up because he believes right now that this thing that he's wanted people to know for 35, 40 years now actually may be told. Yeah. And, you know, it's, yes, I love having, you know, people be proud of me, but to hear that, you know, I, it, it doesn't matter how late I have to stay up tonight. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> now we can all breathe. Uh, uh, we, we're going to do some questions, Brad, if you're good for a few sure. more minutes. Um, and you folks are as well. Yes. So I, I tell people that I, too, I'm a recovering journalist. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> by the way. Stick with it. I love your, um, your storytelling ability, yeah. and I, I like your style and I will say that the attorney, Eric Gottlieb, smoothed that path for me by starting that process 20 years ago. But it's very uncomfortable to, you know, I drove down to Casey, South Carolina. Uh, the first time you sit across and say, listen, I'm working on a story that says the person that, you know, everyone has always thought killed your relative isn't. I was so heartened to find that by the time I even got to them, they were advocates. They believed in Charles Wakefield by the time I got to them. Uh, you know, they will readily admit that they, you know, one of them has a couple of brothers who don't live in town anymore at all, who just don't understand why they care so much, why they care so much about changing the past. Just let it be. But speaking with them and hearing how much they believe in Charles Wakefield really makes my job very easy because I no longer have to think about the, you know, there's two sides to every story. I mean, yes, in fact, there are, and I do my best to be as objective as possible. But the one thing that I absolutely know is that the surviving family of the murder victims believe the person who was imprisoned for it didn't do it. That makes my job very easy. Now, to sit across from them as they remember it and they remember living that life and having them go through it again just for my benefit. That's not easy. Who else? Yeah. Uh, so question I really have is uh, if you'd share a little bit more about your relationship with, uh, with uh, Fast Eddie. Sure. Um, and that's a story that's really complicated and even more complicated than I can ever talk about um, right now. But what I can tell you is this. I had read about Fast Eddie for a long time. But in my brain, Fast Eddie was just another one of these gangsters of the day. And I never expected him to be who he was. But in, like I've done with almost you know, everybody that you've either heard about or seen pictures of, I wrote him a letter. I it took me a while to track him down. Once I tracked him down, he was in prison. I wrote him a letter and I got back a letter that I, very similar to a lot of the responses I get from people like this. It's like, you know. Why do you even want to talk to me? But over time, we started going back and forth with each other. And, and like, there's the, what you may not know about the federal prison system is they have a really great email system. And so, I mean, um, it, it, costs the, it costs the person who's imprisoned a, an amount to, to send these emails back and forth, but you can. And before long, I realized 
I, I was emailing back and forth with Eddie, you know, once a day, sometimes at a minimum. And we would talk about the case, but then he'd also want to know what the line on the Clemson game was. Um, and, and that's not a joke. That actually happened. Um, I mean, to the point of where, like, he, he doesn't get a ESPN in prison, but he wants to know what's going on. And, you know, I, I do my best to say I never become friends with sources. And, I mean, Eddie did some bad, bad stuff. But I became very familiar with him over the course of the last year and saw him less as a caricature of a gangster from the 1970s and started to realize who he was as a person. And once that happens, you know, ideally that happens for every person you ever interview. You don't always have that opportunity. For a man who's imprisoned and just needs somebody to talk to, that opportunity exists. So I, I, I've gotten to know Eddie really, really well. And he's been very, very helpful. But I can also say that the vast majority of what he's told me, I'm not allowed to say because um, uh, that's part of basically uh, almost everything is off the record except for the parts that are. Yeah. Can we expect more sound from him? Yes. Um, there are things that we've discussed that I've actually recorded already that will be part of later episodes that it discuss what happened with Eddie after all of this was over. Because of some things that are happening right now that I'm not entirely sure how they're going to end, I don't know <laughs> how much of that's going to happen, but there is an episode that will take place that will explain what happened with Eddie after this entire experience and what happened with everybody that was associated with Eddie after 1975. We've got time for one more firsthand, yes. Uh, there's a quote that kind of stopped me in my tracks when I was listening and you commented about the truth and being a man and revealing truth. Um, I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that. And then as I've listened, I was like, if I was in your position, I, I think I would start to feel afraid. And have you ever felt, or are, as you're kind of getting into the grid of it now, have you felt like, you're in danger, or have you got any threats or things like this of exposing these truths? I have to measure how I respond to this real quick. Oh, about one thirty in the morning. About one thirty last night. Um, I'm not going to bed, but my wife is, and I go up to say good night, and we have a long talk about this very issue. Um, and about how it's affected us and our family. Now, to the first part of your question, I, I, I tried to decide, is the truth in this and the truth in the world important enough to essentially give up, you know, not in a dramatic way, but just give up all of my time, my life? Eventually I decided that, in, at least for right now, yes and people want to know it. And I think that whether it's Joe or it's Shannon, it's anybody here, they want to know it. But there became, there was a point just before we decided to do this. And I mean, I'll remember this for a really long time to where we sat our family around the dinner table and we had to decide together that we were going to do it because it meant that we had to change the way things go. We had to the bus stop is a different situation because all of a sudden you have people calling you in the middle of the night telling you don't do this. You're meeting with people 
that you've never met before in places that aren't protected by anybody who are telling you don't do this and telling you why you shouldn't do this. And you have to make some decisions in your life that you wouldn't have had to make otherwise. You know, I, I, I would never have five cameras facing in every direction around my house because I, I grew up in a house where we didn't lock our doors. And now, you know, we make sure that we have the apps on our phone to make sure the alarm's set while we're gone and we have five cameras around it. And that doesn't even begin to discuss what we talked about at 1.30 this morning because it's scary. And it sounds dramatic and I don't want to overblow it. I don't. Um, but I can tell you that there are people in this room right now that aren't me that have been scared for all kinds of different reasons. And it, they're valid reasons. And, you know, I don't want to make us out to be crusaders and I don't want to make us out to be people who are, you know, definitely in danger and doing something amazing, you know, and not and being so brave. But it's without question the scariest thing I've ever done. So on that uplifting now, it's funny because I was asking Brad some of those same questions uh, before uh, we got started tonight, um, knowing that uh, there had been a lot of talk over the years about the people know things they don't want to come out. That always can put people in danger. So, uh, Brad, we thank you. Andy, you as well. Christy, you as well. Uh, Michelle, of course, thank you. And, uh, Thank you. Seriously. Uh, yeah. I know he thanks you. For I, I walk in and there's a guy named Billy Goldsmith here and I don't know sure where he's in the room. But anyway, like for people to donate like he does and all of a sudden show up and walk in the room and I, I get to see the guy who just gave me money to help me support this thing. I mean, it's literally the best thing that's happened. So uh, I'm going to pass a plate around here. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, but, uh, but it, it's easy to give if you want to give. Uh, and I think just as importantly, Brad, uh, to finish up for you, you might not say it, but uh, for those of you who are listening and feel the compelling nature of the story, share your thoughts. The more folks hear about it, listen to it, spread the word, who knows what that leads to uh, and helps get to the truth, the ultimate truth, uh, because we all hope there's a, a rewarding ultimate truth for everybody. So again, thank you to all of you, Brad Willis, especially you. And is the bar still open or is it closed, Shannon Wilbank? I don't know. Make a break for it. Make a break. And that was how things were in November of 2019. We're releasing this bonus episode in the last weeks of 2019. Thank you again to Joe Irwin. Shannon Wilbanks, and everybody at Endeavor. You folks have made me feel at home when I'm working there, and you made me feel at home that night. Thank you. To everyone else, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We'll be back with episode 25 in the first weeks of 2020.